Twitter is a social media platform that does some incredibly complex stuff when it comes to distributed systems engineering to keep the website up and running. Twitter has open sourced a lot of projects for others to use. Twitter created a fork of Memcached called Twemcache, and also a fork of Redis to handle the caching issues. In this episode, we talk to Yao Yu. Yao Yu is an expert in distributed systems and performance. She led the cache team at Twitter, and her most notable open source project is Pelican, a modular caching framework with the best performance and operator ergonomics in the domain of distributed caching. Pelican is ideal for a large-scale deployment as well as cutting-edge research. This episode is hosted by Alex Debris. Alex is the author of the DynamoDB book, The Comprehensive Guide to Data Modeling with DynamoDB, as well as the DynamoDB Guide, a free guided introduction to DynamoDB. He runs a consulting company where he assists clients with DynamoDB data modeling, serverless architectures, and general AWS usage. You can find more of his work at alexdebris.com. Yao Yue, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Alex. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, you are a former principal engineer at Twitter, and I'm uh, I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm honored to be talking to you because you're kind of a legend in like the the backend caching performance spaces. I think people that that uh, know what's going on there really respect your work and and what you've done. Um, for those in the audience that haven't heard of you, can you maybe give us a, a feel of what you've been doing at Twitter uh, over, over the last twelve years there? Yeah, I joined Twitter. Uh, pretty much straight out of uh, grad school. I, I quit my PhD and came to San Francisco to work at Twitter. I sort of landed on distributed caching uh, by accident because my first project was supposed to be distributed tracing, which is something else that I later <laughs> became interested in. But at the time, that project ended up taken. So so caching was this thing that was actually on fire at Twitter during the fail wheel era. So I was one of the two members of the cache team and and caching work pretty much defined the first half of my tenure at Twitter. So I worked on cache for uh, over six years. During that time, forked Memcached with my teammate. We forked Redis, made some changes. I gave a talk about it, still my, one of my most watched talk. And at some, point, at some point, I was like, I want to understand or be able to articulate what is the essence of caching, right? And I want to build uh, a project that captures captures that essence as well as all the things I have learned over many years of uh, sort of significant incidents. So that uh, led me to writing Pelican, which has now been rewritten in Rust. Um, so, so that was my work mostly uh, on caching. I was a member of the team. I was a tech lead of the team. At some point, I was... SRE of the team, and later I was a manager of the team. So I did pretty much every role possible you could on, on, on distributed caching. And after a while, I was looking for something new to do. So the second half of my Twitter tenure actually was about performance engineering. Uh, the, the sort of the, the, uh, the hint I got from that, uh, that got me into that was I, I realized by working on caching, I spent actually non, non-trivial amount of time, I would say close to... 50% of my time just trying to understand how this little piece of conceptually simple software interacts with the system underneath it. That includes kernel, hardware, networking. 
So by doing, by, by having a, a reasonably good understanding of how caching or cash works, uh, I was preparing myself really to understand how the, the sort of uh, the guts of uh, systems runtime works. So naturally that led me to, to try to apply what I have learned to just runtime systems in general. So I founded this team called IOP, Infrastructure Optimization and Performance. We have a few veterans, uh, both uh, from within Twitter and also a later from outside of Twitter. And then what we did was we were just trying to apply all kinds of system knowledge and, and also research practice uh, to improve the efficiency and performance of the backend system in general. Awesome. And were you the team that was like setting up distributed tracing across Twitter? Because I've heard lots of good things about the distributed tracing of Twitter, or were you using some of that insight to, to then drive efficiencies or what did that look like on, on that latter half of your tenure? So the first, I would say up until 2018, I had very little to do with distributed tracing. So one of my coworkers, Johan, he was the original author of Zipkin. Uh, Zipkin later got open source and became OpenZipkin. OpenZipkin morphed into OpenZipkin V2, which is now part of the Open Telemetry Tracing Standards. So, so there, a lot of people don't know this, but but the tracing standards sort of originated from Twitter, which of course was uh, inspired by one of the Google papers that didn't come with a uh, implementation. So, so everybody else at the time, right, was just trying to reproduce that. So, uh, no, I, I didn't have much to do with the original tracing, but my team. So this is the IOP team. My team sort of took over the ownership of uh, Zipkin aggregation archi architecture and redesigned it because uh, after years of uh, a little bit of understaff, under, so, so Twitter was uh, very short on staff on observability in the middle of the 2010s. So after a few years of neglect, it was really in need of a major overhaul. So my team redid the uh, aggregation pipeline, and then we started actually doing aggregated analysis. And this is another coworker of mine, Rebecca Isaacs, who did most of that. So we can talk about that some other time, but uh, I'm not the expert, but I was the sponsor for a little while at Twitter to get this work moving forward. Awesome. Cool. I want to hear more about the performance engineering because I think that's so interesting. But first, I want to start off with the caching stuff because, again, that's where I, I sort of know you best from. Um, you know, you mentioned Pelican. There's also SegCache um, projects you've worked on. Uh, but one paper I love of yours is uh, the, the 2020 Usenix paper that was just like, it's titled basically a large-scale analysis of hundreds of in-memory ca in cache clusters at Twitter and just looks at what I think 150 different caches uh, does all the tracing of the request forum for a week or so, generates like 70 terabytes of data, and then just and analyzes uh, request patterns, TTL, object sizes, uh, miss ratios, all sorts of things, which I think is really interesting. Um, so I recommend everyone to check that out, but maybe you could give everyone a sense of like the scale that Twitter is working at and realizing, uh, you know, a lot of people use caches, but probably not near the level that, that Twitter does. So like, what does the cache infrastructure at Twitter look like? So cache infrastructure at Twitter, I think has a few characteristics. One of them is that we, you mentioned we have uh, over 150 clusters in this paper, right? Uh, so we started from a multi-tenant, uh, sorry, we, we started from a single-tenant cache design and pretty much stuck with it. Uh, single-tenant here means that not necessarily that every data set will have its own cluster, but it, we're much closer to that 
than everybody being in a gigantic cluster, which is uh, often the preference of a lot of stateful services. And the reason for that is, uh, you know, we, we have such a diverse collection of use cases. Some people have large objects, some ha people have tiny objects, some workloads were read heavy, some were write heavy, some had very tight SLOs, some was very tolerant. So it was difficult to, well, A, it was difficult to get even observability if you have a multi-tenant system. And B, um, it was much easier to cater to the specific needs of individual data sets or individual teams if they were separated or or, or isolated at the process level. So, so this is one of those things, like even within Twitter, is a, it's a bit of an unusual choice to have many, many clusters. And, and one of the things this, uh, one of the challenges this brought us is we had to automate a lot of the operations very early on because nobody wants to manually deploy even 50 jobs, never mind 200. Right? So, so this is one characteristics. So it's a little harder for, for me to talk about sort of cache in aggregate, what's the aggregated QPS, et cetera, when we have so many clusters. And the fact is when you have individual clusters, then the aggregated QPS doesn't really matter as much. Uh, so I would just say the the largest cluster one of the largest clusters we have uh, has over a hundred million requests per second at daily peak. So, so that's the the scale, which which is big, but it's not. Uh, it's I, I certainly wouldn't claim this is the largest in the industry. But for, as a matter of fact, I know Facebook has a, a cache cluster that it that's at least ten times bigger. As a, after talking to some of them, so it it is a respectful. It, it is respectable. But uh, it's not crazy. So, so what we did is we tried to be able to serve customers big and small from 100 million requests per second all the way down to maybe just a few. And arguably, arguably I think our design were mainly designed for the bigger tenants or bigger use cases than the smaller ones. When you joined the team, was was there was there a centralized cache infrastructure team, or was each team sort of spinning up and managing their own cache, and eventually it got migrated over to a more centralized team? So back in 2010, when I joined, I was the second member of the cache team by about a month. So I was a month behind the first member <laughs> of the cache team. But but before that, plenty of people worked on cache. So my understanding there is there was a bit of a Wild West era before me. So there were there were caches. People were using caches, uh, you know, for years by then, right? And a lot of the people who later became principal engineers of this or or senior director of that, at some point chipped in on cache because you have to. Otherwise, uh, we couldn't keep up with the scale. Um, but uh, yeah, as a dedicated team, it, it, it really only started in, in 2010. And sorry, what is the second half of your question now? The, you were talking about that. Oh, I can't even remember now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yep. Uh, but um, you mentioned that that while on that cash infrastructure team, you forked both uh, Memcache, this is Twemcache, and then Redis, is that Nighthawk? Is that correct? Uh, Nighthawk is a solution. We forked Redis to to create Nighthawk, but Nighthawk has other components. Okay. Why, uh, what led you to, what were the sort of the unique needs of Twitter that led you to forking, uh, you know, these existing open source projects? Mm -hmm. 
So forking, forking memcached was not my decision. I was too junior at the time to make that decision. Uh, so the the other member of the cash team, who was the tech lead at the time, I would you know de facto tech lead, uh, decided that we needed to address the the slab calcification problem. So so for the longest time, right, memcached uses LRU at the item level which gives you pretty good hit rate if uh, if you have a very predictable size distribution among all your keys. But because Twitter in the early days was using memcached actually to cache uh, timelines. So timeline is just this collection of, it's a list of uh, tweet IDs that is uh, ever growing if you keep following more and more people. Right? So so that particular access pattern um, made the made, was actually really bad for the LRU design that was uh, that was in memcached. What we need is we need to resize uh, the items, so we need to move slabs from one slab class to another, so they can be used to to store different sized timelines. And that was very difficult to do efficiently in memcached. So this was the the, the primary uh, trigger for us to to fork memcached into Twemcache. And once we got on that, so so the, so the goal actually was to design a, a new algorithm to evict evict keys and, and reuse slabs. But once we got started, we also did a lot of things you would do when you just scrutinize a code base. So we ended up doing a lot of code cleanup and style changes and refactoring. And it was not long, like maybe a couple months after we started forking that we realized the, the diff we created cumulatively was already bigger than the original memcached repo. So that's the extent of the refactoring. Uh, so there was no going back back at that point, right? If we were still thinking about, should we upstream the change? By then we're like, okay, this is not happening. <laughs> we should just... We should just fork it and and maybe maybe release it, and that, that's what we did. So Redis was a, a slightly different story. We we certainly were not nearly as ambitious in our uh, in our modification effort as with Memcached, and also Redis was a much bigger and richer code base. Right, it, it already had like a dozen data structures and, and different types. And and we mostly were just trying to create a, a couple of alternative implementations for for the for the workload that were not covered by memcached but also was very important to to twitter so again so timeline was the uh was the workload uh, or the or the product that drove innovation and, and the hyperlist for example the hyperlist that i worked on was a direct response to what home timeline needed at the time and so again th- this decision to fork uh, wasn't really my decision. Uh, it was the thing that the product team really needed, and they wanted some someone to to get it done. And I was the person to help them. Um, it's it's just uh, with Redis, it's just simple as that. And Nighthawk came later, but in the beginning, it was uh, using Redis to to store time various type of timelines, and that was the beginning of forking Redis. Um, so you mentioned memcache more there as compared to Redis, and I think also in the paper. It mentions that memcache is used quite a bit more heavily than Redis at Twitter. Uh, what's the reason for that? Is it sort of like when, uh, where those products were at that time or are those unique needs of Twitter? Because I think 
generally in the industry, if you look at right database rankings and stuff now, Redis tends to rank above Memcache. Um, so why, why was Memcache more popular at Twitter? There was just a lot of simple, dumb use cases. Dumb, I, I, I use dumb, right? But you just need a key and a value and you need it to come back fast and you don't want to think about it too much. And Memcache is really good or Memcache-D-like services is really good for that. Uh, I think uh, the rise of uh, Redis in popularity, mostly, this is my impression, I could be wrong, right? But but I think it mostly comes from using Redis as a very expressive database. And, and I'm not saying that use case does not exist at Twitter, but as far as the cache team is concerned, we were trying to limit ourselves to um, to cat and proper caching use cases instead of databases. And there was a different team that was in charge of databases and they had some features that overlaps with some of the Redis features, right? I, I wouldn't say it's the same, but, but it's just like uh, not our concern. So, so that's why we ended up having, you know, you, you always have like in terms of numbers, you, it's easy to have a very large number of the most basic use cases, which was more caching. And, and for Redis, uh, even though we don't have as many, uh, in terms of numbers, we have about maybe 10% the number of use cases as we have Memcached. But those clusters tend to be quite a bit bigger on average. So they are, they are fewer, but they are definitely very, very important. So you mentioned you helped build Pelican, which is a caching framework. Um, what, what led you to, to build Pelican and what's Pelican all about? So I was uh, thinking, so because I forked Memcached and I also forked Redis, I spent a lot of time just reading the source code of these projects. And and the team at the time was also uh, on the hook for maintaining both projects. And, and these were not the only cache backends we touched, right? We also built something called FatCache. I think you can still find it on GitHub. It never went into production, but it was an attempt to put slabs uh, on SSD. So this was years before Memcached started doing uh, external store, right? Which is now a part of their main main code uh, code base. And we also had a project called Slimcache. It's a bit of a sort of tongue in cheek joke against Fatcache, but Slimcache is a low metadata uh, overhead. So so typically in both Redis and Memcached, when you store a key, you store some metadata. And the overhead of that is on the order of 40 to 70 bytes, depending a little bit on the implementation, which is a lot if you have a very key value, right? So so one of the effort we had early on is like, we have a lot of counters, which are very tiny keys and very tiny values. Can we make the memory efficiency a little bit better compared to what is, uh, you know, the standard open source solution? So Slimcache was a, a limited, uh, it's, a, it's a storage design with a lot of limitations, but one thing it excelled at is it had extremely low per key overhead. But again, this is something that we wrote and it worked, but we were never able to put into production. And, and the reason for that is if you have a team of single num- digit number of people, you know, some, somewhere between five and 10, maintaining two solutions is already a lot. Maintaining four or five or six, that the proliferation of code bases was completely unsustainable. So that also got me thinking. I I wanted us to be able to innovate, but I, I didn't want to incur the tech debt or the tax that comes with it. 
So I started thinking, how can we introduce new features without the proliferation of code bases? And what is the essence of, of, of cache? Like more specifically, what is different between Memcached and Redis? Is that different difference fundamental? Is there a way of unifying them in such a way that we get, you know, so to speak, better of both worlds, or we get to pick and choose what features we want and and just like playing Legos, we can mix and match different aspects of, of the desirable properties of Cache. And so, so that really was the uh, uh, sort of main motivation of doing Pelican. Is I, I at some point I concluded that distributed caching or dis- the backend of distributed caching is nothing more than a very high performance RPC server, often written in native language, plus one or more storage backend as a library that you can use to store key values or, or richer data structures. So, so I decided that that will be exactly how I want to design a cache, you know, from a, if I have a clean slate, then that's how I would uh, design that. I want to make that uh, separation of these two parts very, very clear and have basically have abstraction of different modules that reflect the nature of caching. And so you mentioned the, the sort of operational burden of supporting more uh, different caches and things like that. Is there that same burden with the different sort of cache engines that you can plug into Pelican, or is that is that burden not that high compared to like the control plane and just sort of operationally managing uh, the, the RPC stuff? Uh, that's a great question. So, so I think this separation is meaningful for operations because one thing we observed is that it often does not matter what exactly is the data that is being stored or even to some extent the operation one is performing against them. That is because memory and CPU are just so much faster, right? But most of the CPU cycle and and I shouldn't say most, I would say majority of the CPU cycle and the majority of the time spent is actually traversing the RPC stack. So, so by that, I mean sending a packet Re, you know, receiving a packet, uh, serializing a request or deserializing a response, that, that type of very mundane, but you know, not very interesting tasks end up eating a lot of the resources. So if we can do a very good job at it, um, the, the variety of store, storage backends actually end up only contributing to a small fraction of the overall performance. So if you have a, a good grasp of the RPC performance, then the overall performance become highly predictable. So we can have a lot of features, but the performance difference between those features will be quite manageable. Nice. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about some like problems that people have with caches. And I'm sure you've seen sort of all kinds of problems and maybe just like riff on like why these are problems. You can also just tell me, hey, this is this is silly. That's stupid. Let's, let's move on to the next one if, if this is no good. But, but talk, talk to me about some of these problems. So First one I see a lot is is like tail latency of a cache, especially at scale. Um, how big of a problem is that? Is that something you see a lot maybe with particular patterns or, or engines or things like that? How do you think about tail latency? I think tail latency is probably, uh, regardless of cause, right? Tail latency is like the number one issue that that led to an incident. So Dan, Dan Liu and I co-wrote a blog last year titled a decade of cash incidents and so so this is on dan Lu's blog and, and i recommend you give it a read 
Uh, a lot of that was sort of scraped from internal tickets and sanitized, but but these were the the law debugging material that we generated at the time. Right? So if you read through those things, you will you will find there are a lot of causes that led to a very small fraction of cash slowing down, sometimes periodically, sometimes triggered by an event. But that that one small event can um, snowball into something much bigger, and depending on how the overall uh, backend is designed, right? So, off the top of my head, I actually cannot think of another cause that matters as much uh, as tail latency when it comes to caching. And and again, so tail latency is often tied into how the RPC stack is written, not so much about the cache backend. Sometimes it is, but the majority of the time it's about the RPC. So this sort of highlights the importance of having a very robust RPC stack. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I've, I've read that post. That's a great one. Um, be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Um, another problem I see people having with caches, and especially on the AWS side, some of the DynamoDB teams have been talking about this a lot lately, is is like bimodality of, of caches, and especially like what happens if you have a huge change in cash miss, miss ratio and like what can what can happen there is that something that you saw a lot um at twitter uh not too much in recent memory i i'm also i think this is an area where i probably need to do a bit of reading to understand what the dynamic db team really mean uh, i think uh generally you want to understand the cause of why there is a sudden change in, in miss ratio. Uh, is it due to the the nature of the workload being a, a somewhat having a somewhat diurnal pattern? Is it because someone introduced a change that was unintended and was not preparing in terms of a capacity for, for that change? Um, I, it's hard to generalize, make a general comment about it is, is what I would say. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, if you want to look on that, like the new DynamoDB paper that came out this year, the 2022 Dynamo at Usenix, that was a great one. Mark Brooker's also written about it as well. But basically the underlying story is like they have this metadata layer that maps uh, data to different partitions and, and they were caching that and they'd have this really high cache hit rate, like 99.75%. Um, but then if you had a cache go down or something like that, now you have an enormous increase, like a 400x increase in requests to the backing data store that just like totally overwhelmed um, that backing data store. So then they did some some changes there to make it more constant work against this, where even if they have a cache hit, they're also doing like asynchronous requests back to that backing data store. So the, the backing data store is, is sort of ready for that uh, amount of traffic and, and things. And so but they've been pushing that a lot. I think it's been pretty interesting to see. Uh, okay. I, I think I misunderstood what the, what, the question, uh, what the problem was. We absolutely see this in some of our caches. And if you think 99.7 is high, we have something that has more than three seven uh, three nines, right? So, so it, it was uh, at some point it was such a big problem that the the SREs of that team did not want the cache team to do any maintenance on their cache, and then we had to do several rounds of negotiation explaining why it's not sustainable to not not do that in the long term. But uh, I think there really are a, a couple of uh, strategies. Uh, so this this phenomenon that your cache is so effective that now it becomes right uh, you know crippling when something happens to it. I think there are really two ways you can look at it. One is, um, like you said, preparing the fallback 
such that any normal maintenance or or failure mode in, that should be accommodated in the data center, it, the, the backend is prepared the, or the database is prepared for it. The other uh, approach you can look at is sort of accept and uh, welcome this phenomenon as an indicator that we need something that is like a super high availability cache, right? The things people can do there is, can we replicate? Maybe, can we just have some replication at the caching layer? Uh, maybe with weakened, uh, you know, consistency, but extremely high availability. Can we uh, introduce somewhat uh, novel, you know, uh, ad- helpers like having the most, uh, there's the other thing is, uh, even in such a cache, right? Usually, a very small percentage of the keys contribute to a majority of the hits. So, can we have a tiered caching solution that, if one of them uh, falls through, you have another layer that is smaller but but catching most of the the, the biggest hitters? And I think there was a Facebook paper uh, on their caching design that talks about gutter pool. And uh, it, part part of the incentive behind gutter pool is also to address this sudden drop. In hit rate, and that was that's great because that's another question I had around problems with with caches. Like you mentioned this in your your paper of the analysis of just like the extreme distributions you see with with caches in terms of like Zipfian distributions of you know the most access keys being accessed way more than than the next ones. Is that a problem? Is that hard in in a cache? Like, um, is that it? What's easier to handle, like a, a Zipfian workload or a more sort of distributed and even workload? Or is it is that irrelevant? Is it more just about total requests per second and, and throughput? I think having a, a more skewed distribution definitely gives you more opportunity to up, do optimization. And, and and maybe that makes optimization a bit more necessary. Like, like sort of depends on how you look at it. Is it an opportunity or, it, or is it, right, a, a curse? Um, one thing that is absolutely hard for any stateful services is a, a single hot key that is hot because it's hot on right. It, that, thing, that particular phenomenon is very hard to, to defend yourself against. But if it's just like a typical hot, uh, you know, read hot key, then there's multiple places where one can build their defense mechanism, right? You can cache it in the proxy, you can cache it on the client, uh, lots of things you can do. But uh, ride hockey is extremely hard. Yeah. In terms of like, um, you know, those harder problems that, that you see in caches, how much of that were you able to solve within your team at like the hardware software level? And how much of it was just like educational, like working with the team and, and understanding more about their use case and just like, hey, you have to use this particular strategy to, to do some of that? So for the incidents that were prominent and in many ways shaped the the cache development roadmap, I was not aware of any single one that the cache team could just fully address on its own. It's it's always about working with the customers, and that's because uh, the workload is very important. Understanding the workload, just understanding alone, is very important in in addressing the problem. And often the solution is about changing the client behavior, maybe reducing the, the the burst or maybe reducing the number of connections or maybe switching them from a blocking connection to a pipeline connection. Right? So, so some of the most important issues, I think, are 
are rooted in the client-server interaction, and that requires collaboration on both sides to, to solve the problem. How did you sort of, um, I guess, like, what was that interaction like with the team, especially as new engineers come on, or maybe people that haven't worked with Cash before? Like, what did that education, did your team take that on, that sort of education and collaboration and reach out? Did people know to reach out to you, or what did that, what did that look like? It's a combination of a lot of things. So, so if you t- think about the life cycle of someone from thinking about maybe they need a cash to, you know, the, the, in the rare case, have a, a very prominent incident as a result of cash, then you want to have the top of the funnel more or less automated. So, so over, over the years, we had a, a self-service portal. People can just create a, a test, a, a, a cluster of cash for testing purposes without talking to anybody. And then they can, you know, play around and then find out whatever they wanted, want to learn. Right. And then once you want to go to production, uh, someone's going to review the configuration, but very much uh, after someone played with the test cluster, they have an idea of what they need and how much of that they need. So someone on the cash team is going to review it, but, but the whole process is very lightweight. Uh, a lot of the education happens around having the correct configuration for cash. Uh, as I said, you know, plus uh, the the dynamics between the client and the server is very important to to get the result that you're expecting. Uh, and we started by mostly talking to people back when we only have a few teams using cash. And by the time we got to, you know, once we had the automation or self-service and the number of cash users really started growing rapidly, right. And, and the, the traditional like face-to-face, uh, you know, type of support model, no longer scale. That's when we started doing a lot of documentation and sometimes having, uh, you know, sample code. So people changing the defaults so that making sure the defaults are working for the majority of the customers having a configuration guide and having some kind of troubleshooting guide, both for external and uh, and people internal to the cash team. A lot of those things allowed us to scale to the number of clusters that you saw in that paper. But of course, you know, whenever there's an incident, it's always high touch, right? (laughs) This is the time when we really have some, sometimes have an in-depth architecture overview of not just the cash related portion of the, of the code, but also what the client was trying to do. In many cases, uh, the best remedy came from someone that is not on cash realized that they can greatly shave the amount of traffic sent into cash by rewriting their business logic. So uh, most of the time, like when you get to the end of the pipeline, that the optimization is always holistic. Um, I, I know a lot of people using cash today you know, are using the cloud and maybe they'll go to Redis Labs or Amazon Elasticash or something like that. But, but Twitter, as I understand it, is, is mostly managing their own infrastructure and data centers and things like that. Was, were all your cash clusters on uh, Twitter-owned infrastructure and data centers? We have, uh, we do use some of the cloud-native commercial solutions, especially by ways of acquisition. So, so it's, I, I wouldn't know all of them but I, I know for a fact that we had uh, more than one paid Redis users just as teams within Twitter. But by volume, by the amount of uh, traffic that we serve, yes, the, the overwhelming majority of our traffic were served out of on-premise and self-managed clusters. And, and what does that interaction model look like for you as a, as a cash infrastructure team? How are you 
managing all these these different servers. I'm, I, you know, it, it's uh, what does that look like? What does that interface look like? We try to uh, we try to automate as much of that as possible. If think about if you have three hundred clusters and potentially three hundred customers. You really don't want to have to think about most of them, right? We we know who our most important customers are, and and they have ours on their speed dial as well. But ninety percent of the time, you know, if we have a, a good enough operational infrastructure in place, things would just happen without anybody paying too much attention. So that would be the nature. I think there's a strong 80-20% rule, like 80% of the use cases we never thought about, 20% we at least were aware of. Of those 20%, maybe there's another 20% that we engage on a regular basis because they are the troublemaker or we are the troublemaker for them. And then we we just make sure we, we talk with each other a lot. And and by by volume, uh, those really are the, the majority of the of the of the throughput that is served out of cash. So if we take care of the the tip of the iceberg, then everything else will follow. Well, I, I love all this cash stuff, and I could keep going on that. But I do want to talk about performance engineering as well, since you've been doing that more recently. Can you tell us any like cool wins or stories or or things that that you learned or or help teams solve while you're uh, doing the performance engineering work at Twitter? Yeah, so I, I want to sort of highlight two things, and, and they are very different in nature. So I, I think this gives a good idea of the sort of the breath, breath of, of what we do. One of them, I want to go back to the distributed tracing example, right? Twitter has had distributed tracing for over 10 years uh, by now, for, for over five years by the time we, we took over. But uh, as some people would argue, it is very hard to get high values out of distributed tracing, which in itself poses some kind of infrastructure tax. Right? It's hard to maintain. It's hard to make sure the data has, is accurate and reflect what is happening in production. So why do people do distributed tracing? And, and one of the projects we did is we used uh, aggregated trace analysis, aggregated just meaning we are reconstructing the tree from the individual spans, which you know corresponds to RPCs. Not only do we do that, we are also merging a bunch of these trees. So, so the so the benefit of doing that is, if you look at a single distributed trace, you say service A calls service B, which subsequently calls service C. Is that always happening? Right? Is that path? always there or is that just a coincidence and 90% of the time A calls B and B calls D right? so, so a lot of the questions only make sense when you can perform some kind of statistical analysis against a very large corpus of data and that is exactly what you know uh, aggregated trace analysis means and if you do the correct version of that then you can answer a lot of wonderful questions such as if you launch a feature let's say the feature enters the backend from service A what kind of database pressure would this feature put on, you know, another service, let's call it, you know, service D, which is a database that is seven hops away, right? Traditionally, doing this kind of prediction is very hard. You sort of have to talk to every team along the path, and then hopefully they have some metrics that, that, distrib- that would attribute their traffic to every downstream. But it's a very tedious process, and you are likely to miss someone. Right. Or some some team on the on, on the path would have no clue about this attribution. But distributed tracing 
automatically gives you that ability to answer this type of question for really any path in the system. And, and, and similarly, you can ask questions about, I have this giant tree, but which server or which service is really the one that is slowing me down? So, so, so this is important for optimization because you don't want to optimize the things that don't matter. If you want to shave latency, you want to shave the one that is directly contributing to user perceived latency. Right? So, so this is just these are just two examples of the kind of questions you can answer with uh, distributed tracing, but it's extremely powerful once you know how to use it. And and I I would say I don't know I, I'm sure Google and or Facebook have similar practices, but by and large, there are very, very few companies who have been able to do aggregated trace analysis and get value out of it. And, and I think Twitter is one of them. And the other example I have is now now we're changing gears completely. Uh, we have this wonderful team member who had a PhD in also like low level systems performance. He came to Twitter and decided that you know uh, we have a serious uh, workload interference problem in our container infrastructure. So what that means is you can have, let's say you have two workloads running, and both workloads are very bursty. Right? So typically in a container, each workload is limited to the number of CPUs that they reserve, except that in reality, that is not what happens. Uh, the, the the CPU reservation in a containerized world is translated into uh, CPU time slices that one is able to use. So, for example, if I reserve eight CPUs, every 100 millisecond, I am supposed to use 800 millisecond worths of CPU resources. And if I go over that, I will be throttled. And so, so throttling is a huge problem in containers because now if I my process is capable of using the CPUs twice as fast as I reserve. So, so I will run at full speed for maybe 50 milliseconds over 16, 16 CPU cores. At the end of uh, that 50 millisecond, I have exhausted my res reserved CPU slice. What happens in the container is that at this point, the process will be stopped, like cold in the track, not able to make any forward progress until the end of that 100 millisecond slice expires. So, so you will have this uh, uh, pattern where a process can run very, very hot, like overheat for a little bit, and then gets shut down effectively for an extended period of time. And then the clock resets, it tries to catch up. So this, this uh, pattern repeats itself. And in the, in the real-time serving world, this type of pattern is detrimental. Because while the server service is not able to make progress, the clock is still ticking. So now if you have a timeout that is set to 50 milliseconds and the process cannot run for 50 milliseconds, everything suddenly times out, right? This is much worse than maybe doing the work evenly during that 100 millisecond time, even though things will progress a little bit slower. So, okay, so the problem is established. Like we really, in, in real-time serving, the desirable behavior is to run smoothly throughout the time slice instead of bursting, but that is very difficult to achieve with containers. And what we did is we introduced a patch that is uh, a patch against uh, CFS, which is the default Linux kernel scheduler. Um, and the patch itself is only 40 lines. And by doing this 40-line patch, what it delivers is the exact behavior people think 
<laughs> containers should have, which is you reserve eight CPUs, you will be using eight CPUs if you try very, very hard. So, so that itself could improve uh, service, server utilization by some, somewhere between 20 to 50%. So huge savings when you have a billion dollar worth infrastructure. Wow. And has that been merged upstream? Like, is everyone getting advantage of that now? We are working, merging something into Linux kernel. I'm not, I'm not sure if I've done yeah. it. <laughs> I have not. No, I have not. But, but word, <laughs> yeah. word from kernel engineers who I trust a lot is it's a, it's a journey. You, you've got to be prepared for it. But that's absolutely the intent is we, we want to merge this upstream because this is one of those very intuitive uh, behavior that somehow has not made its way into the kernel. And I, I'm hoping it will be there someday. That's cool. I want to go back to that tracing one because I think that's really interesting. I remember having a, a similar problem a few years ago at a company where very easy to find an individual trace and, and sort of see what happened, but very difficult to aggregate, you know, that particular route and all the different paths it could take, you know, depending on, uh, you know, how many records they have there or, or whatever, you know, whether it's a cache hit or miss. Um, do you see any, I don't know how well you, uh, aware you are of like the ecosystem, but do you see any companies sort of offering that that are doing it well and maybe copying some of the patterns that that Twitter's done or, or Facebook or Apple or, or different things like that, where you know smaller companies can benefit from that? Uh, there is a tracing company called Lightstep, uh, and I think their chief product person. Uh, was uh, used to work at Twitter, but but on not on tracing on something unrelated. Uh, so this company, I think, has done a lot uh, to do similar type of analysis. Except that I don't think they their typical customer had quite the same scale and or legacy data that Twitter did. So I, I would say similar objective, but probably different approach. Yeah, yeah. I think they got bought by ServiceNow. ServiceNow, sure yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, cool. So yeah, I, I guess folks go check that out if you're having those sort of those sort of tracing issues. Um, yeah, yeah. This has been this has been really interesting. I love uh, hearing these stories, and I'm sure you've seen like just some amazing things at amazing scale, and it, it's cool to see those. I'm you know very uh, disappointed to see you um, leaving Twitter, and, and after all the great work you've done there. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what's next for you. If, if people wanna you know find out more about you or, or reach out to you, where can where can they find you? Uh, they can find me, well, <laughs> ironically, I guess best still on Twitter <laughs> for now. And let's hope Twitter does not go down. Like, this is why we labored, right, for years is to have a stable infrastructure. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, but I, I think reaching out directly to me on LinkedIn is a little hard. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think there. if you search for my name, Find a way on GitHub, right? Let's drop a message however you can. I, If you have interesting problems, I'm usually very eager to have a conversation. Yeah, very cool. Uh, you, you mentioned like building that stable infrastructure at Twitter and things like that. I don't know if you want to go into this, but just like over time, wh like what degradation would you expect to see on Twitter? Is that, um, or like how would we sort of experience any, you know, from all the upheaval? What would, as users of that, what would that look like? Certainly, it will be hard to predict exactly what may break or if things will break, right? Like, I, I think people need to remember that failure is a stochastic process. You cannot predict when exactly. You cannot predict what exactly. But the type of things I think 
are likely to be agents uh, of change or agents of failure would be if Twitter start deploying a lot of changes, especially changes that change how services are being used and people are not following up with the, the proper capacity or reliability exercise to, to readjust to that, then failure will become more likely. If, if, the, if the service remain largely stable without change, which is what has been happening for the past few weeks, then I, I, I think things would run mostly okay on really on autopilot, right? Just, just uh, self-healing. Um, the other thing that may change, that may lead to uh, maybe, maybe trigger something uh, bigger is generally uh, service discovery or network infrastructure, things that is uh, on the critical path for every request to eventually happen. Those infrastructure that are largely invisible from a product point of view tend to be the one that breaks. So, so someone who understands like, who has operated this uh, systems uh, will know what I'm talking about, right? Like if you have DNS, <laughs> DNS often is the, the reason you have an incident. And this type of failure is is what I would be, if I have to take a bet, I would bet on this type of failure. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for all the work that, that you did, your team did, all the people at Twitter, because, uh, you know, Twitter's been awesome for me. You get to meet a lot of interesting people. I also appreciate just like all the, the papers and talks and projects that you've gotten out there, I think, um, been, been really beneficial to the, the engineering community. So, so thanks for doing that. Thanks for all your work. And, you know, I'm excited to see what's next for you. Same here. I, I would encourage anybody. It does, you don't have to be Google or Facebook or even Twitter, right? To be sharing your data. There is definitely a, a lack of real time, uh, sorry, real world problems for people who are very brilliant, like researchers. But but they can they can base their uh, wonderful thoughts and creativity on real data and then real problem. And this is one thing I, I learned myself is there's so much we can do to come together as industry and academia, just to move the status quo forward. And it's wonderful to be here and, and discuss all the things that I have done. You know, uh, hopefully we we will have another chance to talk about something else, not too long from now. That would be great. I would, I would totally love that. So yeah, UA, former principal engineer at Twitter. Um, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Alex, for having me.